I think psychedelics allow people to kind of step outside themselves, like give them a, a third, third person perspective, kind of, I guess. When you become aware that you have a choice of how you react to your reaction, then you're like, oh, that, like, that's like an infinite power you can carry forward somewhat. I can't emphasize enough to really listen to people when they talk about their benefits, they talk about their experience, because that information is full. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Many people, psychedelic drugs like LSD or psilocybin are their first major introduction to a profoundly altered state of consciousness. I mean, other than dreaming, orgasm, near-death experiences, transcendental meditation, or taking too much robotessin, etc. The point is, there are many different forms of consciousness, and some drugs, especially psychedelics, are really good at showing people how networks in the brain can be tweaked to show you something very different. Mental conditions like autism or ADHD are other forms of consciousness, although they don't wear off after 12 hours, and so-called, quote, neurotypical people often have misconceptions about these mental arrangements. Many folks with autism don't see their condition as a defect or something to be fixed, an attitude that has sparked the neurodiversity movement. But autism does come with its own set of challenges, some especially find difficult in socializing with others. A very early body of scientific research suggests that psychedelics could help with some of the challenges of autism. MAPS, for example, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, is exploring using MDMA to treat social anxiety caused by autism. But some folks with autism aren't waiting for the science to catch up and are trying psychedelics already. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guests today are Aaron Orsini, author of the book Autism on Acid, How LSD Helped Me Understand, Navigate, Alter, and Appreciate My Autistic Perceptions, and Justine Lee, a graduate student in pharmacology at UC Irvine with a BS in neurobiology. Aaron, Justine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Troy. You know, first, I want to mention that this episode is being produced in partnership with Filter Magazine. There's going to be an article on this exact same topic, so you can read about it at filtermag.org. Before we get into this discussion about uh, psychedelics and autism, you know, I, I know you're both really responsible about this, so I'll let you insert all the caveats you want, uh, such as we're not suggesting anybody with autism actually take psychedelics. They're not a panacea. They're definitely not a cure. Some people want to, you know, cure autism, but that's not the goal here. Uh, many people with autism do not see their, their brains as, quote, broken, just wired differently. So maybe we can start with maybe addressing some misconceptions about autism, what it's like to have it, and the whole neurodiversity thing. You know, maybe, first of all, autism is best understood as a spectrum, and so people can experience it in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, we would definitely echo those same sentiments as far as safety and the consultation of relevant professionals and all of this is essential to our messaging as well. And in specific, in relation to the question of neurodiversity, you know, a big part of the project that we're currently involved in uh, revolves around really gaining a more well-rounded understanding of the needs of this population therein. Uh, I myself am diagnosed autistic as well as ADHD. And really, through the process of publishing my first book and putting that out there, 
I don't think even during that process, I was quite so fully aware of the variety of experiences of other autistics out there. Um, and so a large part of my personal work from shifting from the publishing of that book to now the, the running of our organization here is really oriented around gathering those insights and those perspectives and trying to really come up with ways to really be more fully representative of those individuals. And, you know, as far as, you know, the question of like, what is autism? Uh, there's 10,000 different ways to answer this. You could find, you know, many different uh, theories uh, from like a scientific perspective, none of which are necessarily unified just yet. Um, you could point to different diagnostic tools, which again, there's like dozens of diagnostic tests that are culturally dependent, that are like utilized for different reasons, different purposes. And so oftentimes, you know, when that that question of, you know, what is autism is positioned to me, the most immediate, like, and ready made response that I have is really just to defer to the individuals for their own unique, like, subversion therein of autism to them. I can speak certainly to my own experience. I can speak, you know, the words of other persons who've offered their words about their experiences, but it's just such a case by case basis that I don't want to add to one of the larger kind of cultural um, dilemmas, which is how can we avoid, you know, the sort of casualties of generalizations while at the same point, how can we arrive to enough agreement that, you know, I could, I could certainly, you know, vouch for the individual on and on and for them to be able to identify with their diagnosis in whatever way, shape or form. But ultimately these things get pushed through the filter of, uh, does this qualify for a medical benefit? Does this qualify for an accommodation in the workplace? So as much as we would love to keep the nuance alive and well, that nuance has to be pushed through some kind of conceptual netting in order for it to be integrated into the civilized world. So and again, I, I recognize that my own answer is somewhat abstract, but that's the result of my own kind of carefulness to not recreate some of those kind of issues related to you know, steamrolling uh, someone who might be an outlier within the same umbrella of the same diagnosis. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance there, uh, which I appreciate. Justine, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I just defer to uh, to Aaron here because um, there's not really consensus as to what the cause is or like there's just like it's it's just a, a big kind of collection of, of symptoms apparently at this point. And so Aaron had put a lot of a lot of details in his answer, and I, I really like what he came up with. So I'll just leave it there. Yeah, I'm really kind of a big fan of this concept called neurodiversity, which was coined in 1998 by uh, sociologist Judy Singer. It's uh, you know sort of reframing how autism isn't a disability; it's just a different way of the human mind forming. And according to one of the dominant theories of neuroscience, uh, human consciousness plays in this concept of emergence. It's several different systems working together that creates this perception. Um, and many people with ASD, autism spectrum disorder, uh, just manifest their consciousness differently, if, if I'm understanding this correctly. So I guess, what is your take on this principle and, and how does that fit into using psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, really, it's it's very much at the core of what we're exploring and what we're learning from other individuals. And, you know, to frame it in one light, um, you, I, I feel it's within reasonability to sort of describe the autistic experience as an altered state experience in terms of its contrast to the quote, like neurotypical experience, perhaps. 
we hear from individuals who will be reporting the, you know, if if you're seeing autism through the lens of a sensory uh, peculiarity or, you know, I have a hypersensitivity to sound and light, but maybe a, a hyposensitivity to certain kinds of kinesthetic inputs or other things, there's there's all of these kinds of uh, varying intelligences and varying degrees of sensory uh, intensity that impact, you know, what stands out in a given environment. How do we navigate that environment? And so, you know, we, we put together like these kind of seven essential like takeaways uh, that we felt were the most important things for people to kind of, to kind of take away from this. And in addition to the first one being primarily this exploration, as you said earlier, is not targeting the cure or like the elimination of autism as a neurotype because it's our stance that indeed autism is a neurotype. Um, but the second one uh, being this idea that it can afford autistics an ability to have a reappraisal of their default mode of processing the world. So in other words, they can see how they normally see when they step outside of that normal way of seeing, they gain that perspective on how they might normally see. And in that way, it it's very similar to how maybe anyone of any sort of neurotype of any disposition might kind of experience psychedelics. You know, it's the idea that it's like mind manifesting or mind aware, the, the idea that you can, you know, have a perspective on the formation of your perspectives is, you know, it has an inherent utility for anyone, but we find it to be really um, beneficial within persons who are reporting things, you know, from, I can, I feel most comfortable speaking from my own perspective. And I also have some quotes I can also uh, read as well at a later point in the talk, if we have time. Um, but for myself, it was coming into this awareness that I was missing this sort of like energetic signature of other beings in my proximity. And I'm still navigating what that really means because part of me wonders still to this day, like, is the reason why that information is like not reaching all the way through to my awareness at times because I'm undersensitive to that stimulus? Or is it that it's so intense in certain environments that I'm filtering it out, like in order to just endure a given situation? Like an, another example that maybe comes to mind is an individual who mentioned that following a psychedelic experience, they went to like a crowded bar uh, kind of environment and they noticed like, wait, maybe I'm not an introvert. Maybe it's just when I go to a very busy, high stimulus place, I like immediately my energy just gets like eroded really rapidly because of that. I've heard others refer to it as a sort of like uh, a skinless sort of way of like a, maybe like an unfiltered sort of way of encountering these sorts of high stimulus environments. Like when you don't have that barrier or that filter, uh, then, you know, a very common situation can become like very taxing very quickly. And so, again, more than, you know, for in a majoritative sense, a lot of persons who are navigating these psychedelic experiences seem to be stating that they're still returning to their relative baseline. They're still returning to their sense of kind of who they are. But in that returning, they gain a perspective on who that, you know, normal baseline default mode person is. And similarly, they become aware simultaneously of not only maybe some sensory inputs that they might be filtering out, but also they become aware like, oh, I'm very sensitive to this because all of a sudden like that becomes very dominant in their field. And they start to wonder like, and just in my own progression, 
I thought that my experience as an autistic was very much like universe universal. I thought that my experience with psychedelics was universal and neither of those are anywhere close to true. And I didn't know this until I started to really cross talk with other people to be like, Oh, like, like it's sometimes it feels like when I speak with certain people, they seem to be talking about their regular awareness as though like they're in my psychedelic state and vice versa. And so like, that's interesting to me too, the way that like, these uh, substances can kind of like uh, allow us to kind of cross boundary lines and experience like other novel forms of awareness and somehow gain a sort of, uh, you know, immediate kind of understanding. It might not always be like identical. Like I, at first I thought that I was experiencing kind of like quote, like neurotypical processing. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. It's just, it's a curiosity of like, Oh, is that what that's like when the most immediate sensory thing in my field of awareness is like the vibrational well-being of like the person opposite me because in my normal sober state previous to psychedelics it was more so you know like what's the words that are being spoken i have an assignment due i have to think about that right now i was like so much more uh, mental rumination mode and psychedelics showed me that there was something other than like the voice inside my head to navigate the world that I could have a direct experience and then make sense of it in that way. So that's, that's a huge part of it. We could unpack that for forever. We're talking about like perception at large, um, but I'll take pause here and, and, and open it up. I think a, a part of what attracted me to neuroscience is it kind of rides the line between hard science and there's a bit of a philosophical debate because nobody can actually step into the mind's eye of somebody else. And so there's this um, everlasting question, which is like, are you seeing the same red that I'm seeing? And there's no way to really prove that your red is the same as my red. We just assume that it's kind of maybe similar. And it's, it's a simplified version of, of, this kind of analogy of theory of mind. And I think more from a neurotypical perspective from my conversations with autistics and and people in the neurodiverse community, I imagine it as, and Aaron, feel free to correct me here, but if, if we consider walking. Walking is a very complicated process. Um, If we think about how our our body has to balance and then the step we take and then how much force we have to put in, all of that input is integrated into our brain and it's been consolidated so that it's not in our immediate awareness and we just walk. But it seems that maybe other neurotypes are more aware of every specific thing, every stimulus in their environment that they have to be aware of. And so Aaron often uses this analogy of like having a limited bandwidth. And so I kind of picture it for myself. If I had to think about every single movement that I had to make while I was walking, like I couldn't think about anything else other than concentrate on what where I was going, what I was doing, so I wouldn't fall over. And so I think with that understanding, it allows me to kind of appreciate what other people might be going through in their heads. And it it allows me just like the patience to be like, oh, okay, I can, you know, give you some time, whatever you need, because I, I don't know what their red is like. Yeah, that's a, 
a good perspective. Can we talk about how both of you first discovered and were introduced to psychedelics? Uh, can we start with you, Justine? Sure. So I, since my his, since my background is in neurobiology, we do study kind of how drugs affect the brain overall. And psychedelics has always been kind of a unknown territory just because the legal status and things like that. So um, when we covered it, it always sounds so, I don't know, like it, it sounds a little sparkly. It sounds a little crazy. sounds a little interesting. And so that initially is what attracted me to study more of it. And with all of this research coming out about how powerful these substances are, it only intrigued me even more. And so that's kind of like why I've delved deep into this particular topic as it as it relates to to neuroscience. I guess Aaron's Aaron's story is kind of out there how he got introduced to psychedelics. Well, I'm curious, Justine, uh, if we can stay on you for just a second. Um, you know, have you tried psychedelics? And if so, what was your experience like? So I did, um, I did have the opportunity to go to, to go out to Arizona and um, take the sacrament of peyote. And that was quite an experience. I think because of the, the environment and the setting that we were under, it was um, the, the ceremony in and of itself, I thought was really amazing and beautiful. Um, As far as like, uh, I can't, I, I really can't speak to um, the experience itself because to be honest, I, I got quite nauseous from it. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I I really believe in what people are saying about it. Like, and there are countless testimonials about all kinds of psychedelics. And so that's, yeah, that, that, that really uh, inspires me and, and, lights the passion to like pursue these things academically. Aaron, I'm kind of curious how, I mean, I've heard your story, you know, many times, um, but uh, if you could share it again. Sure. I mean, yeah, I've also heard it many times. So I'll give you the superbly condensed version. Um, And yeah, I mean, I, uh, I was diagnosed at 23 at 27. I tried LSD for the first time and I had the conventional psychedelic experience that many people would report as far as connecting to nature, to myself, to, to all these things, a sort of like sense of oneness or wonder. Um, but the thing that stood out was, was that sort of, uh, deep kind of what I've come to learn to be related to in like some, a term that's referred to as interoceptive processing. And this sort of heightening of my ability to detect inner feeling states. And this has been well established for uh, psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, MDMA. Uh, and it's even uh, Messner and uh, Nichols, I think they coined the term uh, intactogen because of this as well, which is broken down means like to engender a feeling within. And so that for me was kind of going from this sort of muted experience of kind of floating through life, like existing more on like the kind of clinging to the conceptual layer of things and remembering like I did this, that got that reward. I did this, it gets that reward. But psychedelics really opened me up to this awareness of like, there was an inherent reward in the immediate experience that was unfolding. And because of that, I mean, at the time, I was in a very uh, dark place mentally at that time when I uh, underwent that LSD session. And I went from being, you know, ideating on uh, suicide, essentially, to 
being the most excited to be alive I've ever been and feeling really connected and feeling this like sense of like, wow, like there's so much here that I was not aware of being here. And I've since, you know, learned how to tap into that space through meditation or breathwork or all these other avenues that can lead us like out of that sort of ruminative state and into a more direct experience. And it completely just shifted my priorities from, you know, not necessarily like what's the reward of what I'm doing, but like, how can I have the most rewarding immediate experience? And how can I share that like presenthood with other individuals and like that being more of a focus or a goal? And I can't really quantify how much of a positive impact that brings. In some sense, it makes me a fully alive period. Like, and, and, and it's, again, I can't emphasize enough that it wasn't, um, you know, that there's other avenues other than psychedelic substances to get there. It's just that those were teaching tools for me at that time that showed me that this was possible at all. And I've since like, you know, committed my life to trying to understand how to just continuously reconnect over and over with, with other individuals, with myself and with that sort of just that, that joy of presence very simply. That's really interesting. Um, and one of the things I'm, you know, really excited about is that you uh, have started this group called the Autistic Psychedelic Community, uh, which people can learn more about at autisticpsychedelic.com. Um, you guys are hosting uh, weekly Zoom meetings on Sundays where people can talk about this kind of thing. You've kind of met other people that have autism uh, that are interested in this psychedelic question. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the group, what you are learning, and uh, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, and I'll I'll defer to Justine uh, to kind of maybe give a little bit of context on on you know how it all got started and and you know what all we do there because uh, she's been an awesome support um, with organizing and everything there. So I'll let her speak a bit about it. So yeah, I um, it it seems like forever ago, but it was actually just like oh at the end of of twenty nineteen. Um, Based on my understanding of psychedelics and what they could possibly do, I can't really explain why or how it happened, but I had the thought that um, it might affect people on the spectrum, um, people with autism, the neurodiverse community. I was very interested in that. And I did a, I did a Google search and Aaron's Aaron's book was the only thing that really popped up other than this um, studies from the 60s and at that time his his book was in google doc format and so I left a message on there saying um hey um you know I'm really interested and I think I'm going to research this for like the rest of my life so I'd love to be able to talk about it and we like exchanged emails back and forth for a couple weeks and then he was like I'm going to start this thing on Sunday. Do you want to help? I'm like, yeah. And like rest is history. We did it for like all of last year. Um, and it's been a kind of an amazing journey because to be honest, I didn't have that much interaction with anybody who is like at least openly autistic. And I didn't even know what neurotype meant like all of this vocabulary this terminology was completely new to me even as somebody who studied neurobiology 
and meeting all of these people and listening to how they experience this world was like, I mean, it, it blew my mind, like quite literally. Um, and so I, I, I can't express enough gratitude for all the community members who have shared their stories and who just like allowed me to be present and listen to them. Well, what are some of the things that people are saying? What are, I mean, what's like a, I don't know, maybe a typical response or some of the stuff that, how is it helping people and uh, that kind of thing? Yeah. So I'd be happy to feel that. So um, the one thing I'd love to point out right off the top is that we actually went through, we gathered um, a little more than 40 individuals contributed reflections um, and we're, we've now bundled those reflections. We're going to publish them soon as an anthology, call it autistic psychedelic. And uh, so that's already up for pre-order on our site. So it's, all this stuff is already out there. Um, and all of the book sales go to supporting this ongoing exploration and just the continuous creation of neurodivergent spaces for people to gather. And so like I, I did bring a couple quotes from from that and I'll let them kind of just speak for themselves. Um, so uh, Emily, who is age 20 uh, with Asperger's syndrome, uh, said, uh, LSD had caused me to react to this incredible amount of happiness, which I usually have trouble expressing by sobbing from that happiness for the very first time in my life. So that's like a very simple to the point kind of telling. Uh, we've also kind of received interesting takes from other individuals. Uh, one, uh, Thomas, who's age 30, he said, he was also diagnosed autistic ADHD. He said, before psychedelics, when I heard a dog barking outside or a loud car or a door slam or someone dropping a plate, I was getting very angry, almost raging, especially if I tried to concentrate. And this is 100% gone today. When there's a loud noise anywhere, it doesn't hurt anymore. I'm totally calm. And so that starts to dig into some of the gray area. And again, more than us coming here or going anywhere really to declare that we know any one thing just yet, what we're really trying to do is just build this conversation and just create a space for it. And one of these questions ongoing is like, are these changes happening only during the exposure to these substances? Are these changes carried forward? Because I think anyone who's done a psychedelic of any disposition can kind of relate to this idea of like, when you become aware that you have a choice of how you react to your reaction, then you're like, oh, that like that's like an infinite power you can carry forward somewhat. Um, but the rest is just too complicated to know when it comes to this particular outcome for this individual. That's somewhat of a, it can be a condition that arises as like a subcondition within autism where loud noises can cause pain or uh, be something that is far beyond my neuroscience knowledge of what's exactly causing this. But the idea that that can be, you know, eased during a psychedelic experience or potentially like eased over time is something that's really radical. And I'm not here to claim that that's the case. It's just like when we hear reports like that, it's like there's there's very there's very little other alternate approaches that I'm aware of that are uh, kind of bringing uh, such a result for individuals, especially when it comes to this idea of like interoception processing and like feeling the self more deeply. Like certainly meditation is a well-established example um, and other things, but some of these, you know, some of these results are really remarkable for individuals who are 
kind of like waking up in this way. Um, and I'll read just one other uh, quote. And I think this is especially interesting because this is coming from an individual, Ian, who is now age 70. And he went uh, and he was also diagnosed later in his life. And I always find that interesting too. Like someone who's 70 years old today, that wasn't even like a diagnosable condition in his like younger years. Like it wasn't very common. Um, but he said in his later years, he said, uh, the psilocybin trip uh, was transformational. I felt as if my outer shell that had trapped my emotions inside and prevented others from reaching me had been ripped open. I was overwhelmed by unconditional love for everyone around me, and I wanted to care for them and protect them. So again, in some way, some of these outcomes are unique, perhaps in autistic populations or neurodivergent populations. On another level, we're also advocating purely for the cognitive liberty for autistics to be able to explore their consciousness. So far as we're aware, there's no direct contraindication for autistics being unable to undergo these sorts of obsessions. And so what you might come to see in the years ahead with Oregon or already with like the Netherlands or Jamaica or legal markets where people can reach services is you might find individuals who are maybe like, oh, I was depressed. I went in. And oh, also this other thing happened while I was receiving those same kind of like sessions. And I think that that's where, you know, some of these trends are going to be able to be more safely unpacked. People might feel more comfortable talking about them if they're doing them without breaking any laws. And if they've like done all the proper like medical screenings and everything. Um, and so again, it's, um, I, I thought, again, having only my own narrow experience, I thought that everyone's experience was like mine until I like started to just talk to more people. And I was like, no, everyone's psychedelic experience is so different. Everyone's autistic experience is so different. Multiply those two. And it's just like, we have heard so many varied accounts, but like one of the few unifying things is just that obviously they're coming to us. We're going to obviously see a more positive trend. If people are coming towards us, we're aware of that also that like we do also hear of challenging experiences. We've done our best to include those as well in this anthology and a lot of that comes from uneducated and like uneducated use, essentially. Like there's there's no reason for it, especially now with the changing climate and everything. There's just really no reason for anyone to undergo anything like this without having the utmost level of support and care and awareness for how all these things are. Like we're so, so close to just being able to like have no stigma at all to be like, I would like to receive these services and then like very soon and certain countries already uh these services are just there um with like medical support with all these things so we're trying to just really encourage like harm reduction and safety at every turn uh, yes this is exciting but like we don't want any 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 harms to befall uh, anyone out there uh, at all and that's that's a part of our group peer support model as well is is to connect people to trustworthy avenues of support and care as well that's really great. I, you know, I really am excited about this community because it is, it is like you said, bringing uh, this conversation into the forefront. And I think it's an important conversation we should be having, you know, hearing people's stories of like sobbing from happiness or being filled with unconditional love is uh, that's similar to some of the experiences I've had in LSD, but you know, uh, it's, 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 it's unique for them. And it's, it, that that's really um, encouraging. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this anthology coming out. This might be difficult to answer because, you know, we can only all speak from our own experience. But what are maybe some of the differences um, between, you know, quote, neurotypical? I don't really like that term, um, but you know what I mean? Somebody that 
fits into, I guess, society's standards for something like that. Um, how does a neurotypical person react to psychedelics versus somebody with autism? Yeah, I mean, definitely the first thing, and you probably already know what I'll say is that like, that's a huge question. I would, I would say again, going back to that idea of like, you know, at this point, I've, we've heard from maybe a couple hundred people who have submitted stories to us or have shared with us. And based on those, one of the most, you know, predominant trends. And again, you're only really going to hear of a benefit if the person maybe didn't necessarily face that as a challenge previously. So, I think, you know, to sort of get at your question, let's say a quote neurotypical person already has a fair degree of, uh, you know, proper interoceptive processing. They're really quite readily aware when they feel angry or sad or when they're cold or when their body is hot or those kinds of things. You know, they might take a psychedelic and they might have an ex like an amplification of that state be like, wow, like the, the sun felt especially good on my skin today. Uh, but that's a that's a contrast to say someone who might have these sort of hyposensitivities, who might be like, wow, all of a sudden I could feel temperature very viscerally in a way that like they're not talking about like oh like it sure did feel especially good. They're like I could notice temperature <laughs> like that's a significant like paradigm shift for that individual, and that's how it was for me as far as like emotional intuition went. Um, of just being like, like there's a story and actually there was a story that was written, uh, Dr. Julie Holland put a book out called uh, Good Chemistry. And within that story, there was an individual who um, was also on the spectrum. And there was a story in there, an anecdotal telling of like, he formed a fist at one point in response to a situation he was in. And he was like, wait, I'm mad. Like he was at the time he was doing like an LSD regimen. And he was like, I'm mad. He's like, I haven't been mad like ever. <laughs> like he's like, I'm actually mad. <laughs> and like that, that's like, again, like that's, that's, it's a lot of the issues that some of us face. And again, we're mainly interfacing uh, well, we are interfacing with autistic adults. And a lot of the issues that we're facing have to do with like dependencies on external cues or other persons to kind of guide our behavior sometimes. And the real profound possibility of this kind of work is that it, it shifts the locus of control back to within the individual. Because then they're like, I knew I was mad. Now I know when I'm mad. Now I can change my life and make it so, so that I'm not mad. Whereas before that anger just kind of like almost like rots underneath the surface of awareness and just like causes all sorts of like just like ills to the body, to the psyche. Uh, and that ability to process instead of just kind of like repress or store or not even come into that awareness. I think that's the key uh, differentiator that I feel. And it's the idea of like, I sometimes will refer to it as in my own story that I went from being really far in to being kind of baseline, like embodied, whereas others might already be embodied or baseline and they might go like far out. And that's sort of the subtle difference. And that's where in my book, I talked a lot about like dosing specific changes, because that's really where we're seeing the biggest subtleties and differences is that like, depending on that baseline beginning point, a certain dose is going to impact someone of a certain predisposition in a radically different way, whether that means like they need more to experience the same subjective outcome, or less or whatever it might be. It's just for reasons yet to be understood. Uh, those changes seem to be uh, you know, really uh, assignable across like this sort of quote, like neurotypical neurodivergent kind of divide. 
Um, but again, I can't emphasize enough that even the things that I wrote about in my book, I've met plenty of autistics who are like, I have no problem with interoception. I actually, my problem is I feel things really intensely and I would like to like, not <laughs> like, you know, it's like, so it's not any one like uniform experience. It's just that we're predisposed to having these wild variances in sensory input. And so I think the stronger benefit is that idea of just being able to notice how we notice and the secondary, maybe most dominant trend is this idea of like um, interoceptive processing being enhanced and that being utile. But that's not a universal uh, symptom uh, or qualifier for autism. So um, it's just something that we see as a general trend. Um, Justine, I'd want to give you the opportunity to weigh in on this if you have anything. Um, you know, differences between like neurotypical psychedelic experience and somebody on the spectrum. So, um the, the basic biology between all of us is the same. That's the assumption that we're all humans. And so there's an understanding of where um, these drugs are acting and what receptors they, um, they attach to. And it all kind of it's after that, everything that happens after that. Once, once the psychedelic binds to the receptor, anything goes. And so it's kind of like taking a handful of marbles and just throwing it on the floor and then expecting like, you know, it's never going to make the same pattern. And because it's just so individual and uh, a common experience that's talked about in, in the neurotypical experience, quote unquote, are, is the visual distortions, like certain um, perceptual changes, like sound gets louder like certain frequencies they're more sensitive to and like taste sometimes gets like mixed with sound and there is this concept called synesthesia where um, the senses kind of gets like hearing the sounds and tasting this you know tasting the colors and all of that kind of stuff so there there seems to be some thing going on with the senses as far as like sensory processing integrating that information and also the user i guess the the user's kind of concept of these things and it it allows kind of uh somebody to take a step back and it's like what is going on here and i think that's just kind of like the universal feeling once someone takes a psychedelic it's like what <laughs> and, and so, yeah, um, the neuroscience is, is very just like it's 5 ht 2 a receptor, dopamine receptor, blah, 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 blah. But then as far as like the end experience, the benefit, all of those things, it's it's so highly individual. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the science that is coming out um, about uh, psychedelics and autism. Um, so the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, um, they've been doing clinical trials for several years with MDMA, sometimes known as Molly or Ecstasy, uh, to treat anxi uh, social anxiety in people with autism. Um, and there have been some other clinical trials. I don't expect either of you to like be experts on all the stuff that's coming out, but uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on this. You know, maybe a little bit about how MDMA is different than LSD when it comes to, you know, treating some of this stuff. Um, and and. If you really want to get into it, like, let's talk about some of, like, the older science as well from the 60s, which seemed to really have a, a problem with consent. Um, this is, you know, before institutional review boards were a thing. Um, so psychedelics were legal. They would sometimes just give them to people in mental hospitals without them really knowing what they were taking. Uh, but, I'm, you know, maybe we could talk about 
some of the pros and cons of that research as well. Yeah, I'm happy to to dive into that, and and pretty much anything that uh, that I would talk about here is also covered at um, autismonacid.com/slash/research. I've been archiving pretty much everything that I could find along the way, not only like research wise, but also any random articles or blog posts, anything that's been written about the subject. I've just been like bundling there, but you know, moving kind of chronologically. You're referencing uh, some of the work that was led by Dr. Gary Fisher in the 60s, and that was during that legal period of uh, research. And there's a number of ethical issues with that research. It was conducted in refractory uh, populations. In other words, individuals who were adolescents and uh, young children uh, who were institutionalized at that time. The, the beliefs surrounding the causes of autism were like also very far removed from where they are now. And there's a lot of, there's just a lot of, you know, it's a, I, it's a little troubling to look back through that lens. Um, and also at the same point, that's some of the only, um, anecdotal, like rigorously reviewed research we have somewhat. Again, you could also argue also that those standards have still been further updated. But irregardless, there are quotes on the record from researchers of that time who were working with these individuals who are reporting some of the same kinds of changes that our adults who come through our group are discussing with us as far as like the individuals will like all of a sudden, you know, uh, start uh, maintaining more eye contact with the researchers or they would like uh, be more engaged in like motility play or they, some of them who uh, maybe seem to start to uh, be forming words uh, according to the researchers at that time. Like our current operation, everything that we're doing, we don't go anywhere near to anything discussing any like uh, any non-adult uh, autistic explorations of any sort. That's like way outside of my bounds of ethics and everything. And really like that research happened and, and so having those quotes is insightful. Beyond that, I don't feel very comfortable commenting further beyond it. Certainly the, the work that MAPS did uh, with uh, Alicia Danforth's team and doing the social anxiety studies was much updated and much, much, much more ethical. Um, and they were actually do- conducting those studies. And each of the individuals actually had support partners present with them, which I think is a really essential component of any sort of future kind of work of this sort. And that's that if we're talking about resolving these issues of social anxiety, I think it's kind of rather integral to have a, a social situation to be able to, you know, uh, move and navigate through uh, as a learning environment. And so all that research is out there. I think it's like mdma-autism.org or something. It's all just out there still. It's wonderful work. Um and, you know, the most recent years, there's only beginning to be some like animal model studies just for like dose ranges related to the potential eventual exploration of using uh, substances like psilocybin in the context of autistic populations. But a lot of the things that you'll find are mapped over more so the concurrent conditions, things like social anxiety, but also as well, ideas of like uh, effective empathy increases seen through the lens of psilocybin. And that's another uh, researcher who actually we were had the pleasure of speaking with on our community group. She came for like a Sunday chat with us. And that was Dr. Katrine Preller out of uh, Switzerland. And she's done a lot of work with social cognition and and that with, with psilocybin and other substances. Um, 
And so, you know, there is research that's out there. And again, a lot of these conditions, like you'll find, at least we find in our group that people who come in, it's very common that they're like, I have ADHD. I don't have an autistic diagnosis. I'm autistic. I don't have an, an ADHD diagnosis. But anecdotally, their descriptions are so very similar and there's a lot of concurrent conditions there. And, and so we can also kind of look at some of that as far as ADHD trials with LSD, like moving into phase three very soon, things like that. So it's all, you know, it's all happening. And so we look at our role within the context of the whole is, is being able to, you know, further grow those understandings and further inform you know, where to point the focal point of like what to look at or what to explore. Um, because, you know, even if we're talking about just moving through phase one, two, three, it's, you know, it's still just beginning um, in like the actual practical, like real world application sense. But I'm myself, am just a writer of stories. So I also defer to Justine, who's like uh, studying like pharmacology presently. I don't know. She's probably also has some thoughts to share. Yeah. Justine, tell us what your thoughts are on the science and, and maybe what you would like to see explored, you know, some something that a clinical trial or some sort that you would like to see happen in the future. Yeah, sure. So as far as the distinction between psychedelics and MDMA, they're they're wildly different chemicals. And so they um, they behave differently in the body. And I, uh, I think conceptually, the way that I like to think about it is uh, psychedelics allow you to think about your thinking. It's a concept called like metacognition. And it's kind of like after you take a test and somebody asks you how well you did on your test without knowing the results, the concept of knowing how accurate you will be, depending on like thinking about how long you studied, like how you felt about taking the test and all of these things combined, some people are just better at assessing their own abilities. And I think psychedelics allow people to kind of step outside themselves, like give them a, a third, third person perspective, kind of, I guess. And in terms of MDMA, it's more about like, feeling the feelings without any sort of like top down, like maybe I shouldn't feel this way or like, what is that? Like, and it just like comes. And then the the feeling in and of itself might be a novel experience for people, especially when somebody encounters another person in their, like in their space. And then autumn, like they start to, feel things they've never felt before. Like, I can't really describe it beyond that because feeling is kind of like beyond the rational, right? It's like, um, it, it just kind of happens. I, I like the the analogy I, I read somewhere that emotion is like energy in motion because it's so just like fleeting. And you're like, what was that? Like, that was kind of cool. <laughs> and to allow people to feel those things and then that's like the first step to like, how do I feel this again? And so then we start stepping into a territory where, you know, that certain substances have a danger, abuse potential and stuff like that, because it's like, it's allowing you to feel these great feelings. But that's why we recommend, you know, the harm reduction, the safety, because uh, that's where you like, maybe you got to put some, some limitations there, some boundaries. Um, 
As far as where I personally would like to see this research go in the future, I think that um, I, I, I don't know because it, everybody is approaching this from like all different perspectives. And the only difficult thing is a lot of times us as researchers, just for ethical reasons, we have to use animal models, which becomes very difficult when we're assessing affective disorders, like mood disorders, any sort of neurological condition. Like a mouse is not going to tell us like, oh, yeah, I remember that. So the the translation aspect of it is a little difficult. And so beyond what I would like to see personally, I would like to express people who are consuming these scientific studies to realize that a lot of these things are done in animal models. And so the results are not always going to be directly translatable to human populations. And so I can't emphasize enough to really listen to people when they talk about their benefits, they talk about their experience because that information is gold as far as like the scientific community goes. And with regard to anything else, um, just listening can, can kind of like open your eyes to a whole new world. Yeah. And that's like, and I think you're referencing one of the recent, like uh, I think they used um, like altered rats in order to like make an animal model study for ASD with psilocybin. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, um, just to, I don't, I don't, just to clarify. <laughs> so um, there is a there is a study that came out that used um, quote unquote an autistic model for mice, and so to explain a little bit of that is um, researchers have identified a compound a, 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 that when they introduce it during pregnancy, it's shown to cause autism in human populations. And so they've used that in these mice and rat models. And they have seen some sort of altered behavior in the offspring. And they've made the assumption and they've connected that in the best way that they can. They've, they've, they've kind of correlated it. And to see if that kind of change in behavior is affected after introducing psilocybin to the mice. And it seems to return them to a normal baseline. But again, these are in mice. So it's really hard to like, is that mice making friends? I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what the compound was? The the one that causes autism? What was that called? I think the agent used was valproic acid. Yeah, so there's been um, studies linking valproic acid use during pregnancy and the consequences of that later on. And there are other compounds that seem to have a harmful effect in utero, which is something that I'm working to investigate right now because a lot of these longitudinal studies the results are coming out like there's a group called the Boston cohort where they they studied close to a thousand mother child pairs and they tracked them since the 1990s and so now all the results are coming out of what happened during pregnancy how did the child um, develop and what's going on there and 
So it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting results. That is really interesting. So if people are interested in this topic, um, you know, obviously we don't want to encourage them to go buy some drugs on the dark web or something like that. But if they want to know more or they want to, you know, figure out if there's a way that they could, you know, safely uh, obtain psychedelics, like maybe in a clinical trial or something, let's say somebody on the spectrum is listening to this episode right now, what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, well, one, that's exactly why we exist, not to uh, directly administer any services, but to be able to, first and foremost, before even getting to the point of considering such an exploration, to also come and like just spend time with other people within our community as well. I mean, I know it's just an online Zoom meeting and things, but something that we've all learned from coming together as neurodivergent people is that some of the issues that we thought we had were contextual. Like you spend time in a room full of neurodivergent persons and everyone just sort of understands the kinds of accommodations they need to provide for one another. And so in the same way of my own story going from like, oh man, I really needed to like learn how to human. I was like, oh, I know how to human. It's just like, I know how to human with certain humans. And then like other humans, like human different, like that. that's like neurodiversity. So like we're here primarily first and foremost as like a support space of just like come be yourself with us. It's awesome. Like it's really fun. Like we we even expanded out now because we we started this discussion about psychedelics like on Sundays, but now we on Wednesday nights we're meeting just for fun, just to have people there and just to connect with them and to give people like we do like breakout rooms and people kind of like have these discussions. But as far as if they're seeking psychedelic services, psychedelic information, whatever it may be. I mean, we exist as a resource for exactly that. We invite people to check out autisticpsychedelic.com to come to our Zoom meetings. Like I'm online three hours a week with like holding basically like open office hours to just talk with people. Like I try to make myself as accessible as I can. Um, and so we're here. And if it's not us with someone within a broader network that we're able to relay people to and, and to, to assist them. Um, with it because again and as you said over and over and over again like there's no reason to take any risk for anyone who's curious there's just no reason to there's plenty of like medically screened like rigorously controlled environments that people can ex do these explorations in and these substances even when they're deemed safe for some people even when they're deemed illegal even so, they're not safe for all people. And that like medical screening component is absolutely essential for anyone considering anything. The worst thing would be like, oh, I'm going to help myself and to do more damage is not, it's just not good. So it's, it's that, but that's why we exist to be able to help and guide as best as we can and to rely on the real professionals beyond us who can uh, really take care of that work um, in the future. I just echo the same sentiments about building community and just talking is sometimes therapeutic in and of itself, just especially during this time when people have been so isolated. Um, it just kind of exacerbates and compounds certain things. Um, so to just like come out into a loving space where people are just, you know, positive vibes everywhere. I, I mean, I even just, I sit there and I, I love it. Like this, it's like my social time. It's my social hour. So yeah, I, I do encourage anybody who's interested or maybe having a difficult time with certain things to come and visit us and just have a chat. 
Yeah, I attended one of your Zoom meetings in the spring, I think. Uh, I think the one with uh, Dr. Preller. Um, and it was great. You know, I, this is what I'm excited about is this community of people networking and sharing their experiences. And, and harm reduction is also really a big part of that as well. Um, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Is there anything else uh, that you want people to know about or anything that people might have missed in this conversation or no, just really, it's 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 a, just a warm invitation just to check out the autisticpsychedelic.com site and, you know, click anything there, join anything there and, and like legit, like we're just twice a week, we're just out there on the internet, come talk with us, like we're, we're, we're here to foster a conversation ongoing, that's our primary aim right now and we're people out there listening, you guys can help us come to an understanding of what's possible in this exploration, so yeah, just the website and come talk with us. We're around. Cool. Yeah. So that's autisticpsychedelic.com. You can also follow on Twitter at Psyched. Uh, and I guess that's everything. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much, Troy. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farrow. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett Farrow. If you like the show, think we're cool, consider supporting us on Patreon. This show is crowdfunded, and we couldn't do it without you guys. But if Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can still help us by spreading the word and giving us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Vivich, uh, V-Y-V-C-H, however you pronounce that. And Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at NarcoCast, and be sure to have a very nice night.